might be one of the more creative titles that we have for um, a GBI. My kids have threatened to not come tonight because the title has poor grammar. Um, they say that, that there should, that, uh, that be, the way that the commas work and all of that. Um, well, I'll let you argue with them about that. But uh, the title is, Why the World Loves a Fake Jesus, Why the World Hates the Real Jesus, and What Are We to Do About It? So really what it boils down to, so you don't get lost in the title, is we're, we're, we're asking a couple of why questions, and then we want to know what do we do about it. And the what do we do about it really is the conclusion, hopefully if we understand the why, we will be better positioned to be able to understand what we are to do in response and how we are to, um, to address these kinds of questions. So the portion that I'm here to address is why the world loves a fake Jesus that presupposes a couple of things. One, that the world sees or that there is a fake version of Jesus or multiple fake versions of Jesus and that the world loves this Jesus. So let me start by uh, proposing to you the answer to that question, why the world loves a fake Jesus. The answer is because we're all tainted by sin and apart from the supernatural activity of God to change our hearts, we are inherently self-centered and that is directly opposed to being Jesus-centered. And when we are self-centered, we are going to make Jesus be whoever we want him to be. And when we make Jesus whoever we want him to be, then of course we're going to like that version of Jesus. And so that's, that's really the answer to the question. We're tainted by sin. That makes us self-centered. When we're self-centered, we make Jesus to be who we want him to be. And then that's the Jesus that we love. So pretty much I could stop right here and uh, give a lot of time to the, to the other speakers, but I do have a little bit more time. So I'm going to try to be maybe a little bit more helpful, but Really, that's the answer to the question, and, uh, and that's where we're going to keep coming back and, and landing over the course of uh, my time here. But really what we're doing is we're looking at the nature of truth at it, uh, foundationally with these questions. We're looking at the nature of truth. What is real? What is fake? What is true? What is false? How do we assess truth? Our feelings, our opinions, our experiences, they're all subject to the truth. I can... Uh, I can go up to the, the top of a high-rise building and I can have all of the feelings that I want that I'm able to fly. I could have all of the opinions that I want that I'm able to fly. But those don't dictate truth. If I jump off of the top of that high-rise building, truth is going to win over my feelings or my opinions. Truth is what it is. Truth is not pliable. Truth is not subjective. But our world, our culture, embraces a truth that is subjective, a, a, a truth that is based on feelings and wants and needs. Let me illustrate that for you. Recently, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, and the title of the article is all that you really need to know. The title of the article was, Do We Still Need to Believe in Hell? Do We Still Need to Believe in Hell? Is there still a need for us as a culture for hell? Or have we culturally outgrown the concept of hell so we no longer need hell anymore? Just the nature of that question 
underlines the reality that the, real, that, that, the, that the truth of hell isn't what's important in the question. It's just based on what our felt needs are, what our, our opinions are, where we think that we are as, as humanity, as opposed to does hell actually exist or does it not exist? The existence of hell is not dependent on anything other than whether it exists or doesn't exist. No other factors, feelings, opinions, perspectives have anything to do with it. So truth has become subjective, but it's not subjective. It is what it is. That's not to say that truth is simple. Truth can have multiple parts, but still be true. We look at the Bible, and we see in John 3.16, for God what? So loved the world. God loves the world, right? Is that true? Yes, that's true. Is it true that God hates? Well, Psalm 5.5 says that God hates those who do iniquity. Romans 9 says that for Jacob I loved and Esau hated. Does God hate? Yeah, God hates. God loves and God hates. Both of those things are totally and completely true. They may not be a simple truth to put together, but it's still true. Truth can have multiple parts, but we do need to keep in mind that partial truth that gets presented as the whole truth is still a lie. Partial truth presented as the whole truth is still a lie. So when we come back and we apply that to Jesus, a partial truth about Jesus, if we present that as the whole truth of Jesus, that's a fake Jesus. And so we come to the topic at hand tonight, why the world loves a fake Jesus, hates the real Jesus, and what should we do about it? It's interesting that um, Jesus is still relatively popular in our culture today, certain versions of Jesus. Even at a time when it seems that Christianity is, is facing a sort of social marginalization, but from political and social movements to bumper stickers, we've appropriated Jesus as a culture into some kind of a mascot for our favorite causes. And we do have to give thought to, are we, are we representing the real Jesus or is he just a mascot for what we, we want him to be? In Romans 8, the Apostle Paul teaches on Christ's mission to call a people and to form them into his own like, likeness. But it seems that oftentimes we, and when I say we, I'm talking about just right now our, our culture as a whole, we are more interested in forming Jesus into our image rather than being formed into the image of Jesus. Even conservative Bible-believing Christians are fond of making statements like, the Jesus that I know would blank, or the Jesus that I know would never blank, as if Jesus, who claimed to be the triune God and one with the Father, can be easily molded into whatever we want him to be. If we're not careful, Jesus can look strangely like the person we see in the mirror. I want to be careful as we, as we go through this that we, that we are looking at what the world views about Jesus, but we're also on guard against how even those uh, tendencies that the world has to have false understandings or false perspectives of who Jesus is, that we don't allow that to seep into our own consciousness and our own thinking, and that we fall victim to the same, the same um, uh, temptations to see a false Jesus 
The Babylon Bee is a satirical news source. And let me underline satirical. It means it's not true. But it does make comment on culture that is often helpful. It reflects a practical attitude of, of many people. In a recent article, Dateline Seattle, Washington, after reading several chapters from the Gospels over the weekend, local progressive believer Wendy Butler reportedly published a Pathios blog post in which she criticized Jesus of Nazareth for not being very Christ-like. The blog post took Jesus to task for his unloving and problematic teachings. He devotes entire sections of his sermons to ranting about archaic religious concepts like hell and the last judgment instead of just coming alongside the marginalized and affirming their sins, Butler said. Very little of what he did on earth I would describe as life-giving. Frankly, I do a better job of being Christ-like than Christ himself. Unfortunately, that's a perspective that many hold. When they come face-to-face with the real Jesus, they think, you know what? I'm more Christ-like than, than Jesus. They might not use, it in those, use those words, but that is the attitude and the perspective. And unfortunately, that's what even brings humor to that kind of satire where there's a strong degree of, of truth and we can see the reality of it. <clears throat> John Calvin says, Every one of us, even from his mother's womb, a master craftsman of idols, Man's mind is like a store of idolatry and superstition, so much so that if a man believes his own mind, it is certain that he will forsake God and forge some idol in his own brain. And this is what the world does to Jesus. And honestly, it's what we as Christians do to Jesus when we're not careful to submit our minds to what he has revealed about himself in his word. Our own feelings and opinions and experiences can easily shape how we view and understand Jesus, and we want to be careful about that. We have to get Jesus right. Not just a partial view of him, but to see him fully as the scripture reveals him to us. A.W. Pink said, Christ is the key which unlocks the golden doors into the temple of divine truth. Jesus is the key. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We have to get Jesus right. In the high priestly prayer, we get a look into inner Trinitarian communication. The Son is communicating with the Father, and we get to see what that communication looks like. And in that, Jesus says in John 17, 3, he says to the Father, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that we know God, we know Jesus. For eternity... We are going to be coming to know more and more about Jesus. We will never come to the end of knowing about Jesus. This is eternal life, to know Jesus. There isn't any possibility that we can know everything there is to know about Jesus in this lifetime, but we can know what he's revealed to us at this point in his word, and we want to know that. And then we can look forward to coming to know him more and more for eternity. But we want to know Jesus. We want to know him correctly. We want to know the true Jesus So what do we mean by a fake Jesus? I'm going to need to grab some water. Author Daniel Darling notes several versions of Jesus that are prevalent today, and I'm going to walk you through some. And some of these you might see in the world around us. Some of these you might even see that slip into your own 
thinking. He notes Guru Jesus. This is the wise, winsome, slightly supernatural figure who fits alongside other religious titans like Buddha or Muhammad. That's a pretty popular Jesus, Guru Jesus. We can see that in the world, and people get, get behind Guru Jesus. Or how about Braveheart Jesus? This is the Jesus that has come to help men recover their masculinity, the Jesus of Braveheart and John Wayne Westerns and big game hunting. We can see that some, some can get really attached to that version of Jesus. Or how about the American Jesus? This is the Jesus of patriotic national renewal, a Jesus who ushers in a revival whose results turn the map from blue to red. This is the Jesus who, if followed, will return us to the perceived glory days of yesterday. But it's not just the political right that attaches some version of Jesus and claims a version of Jesus. We also have progressive Jesus. This is the Jesus who serves as a mascot for progressive social causes. This is the Jesus who, def- who is definitively anti-capitalist and pro-social justice with little interest in the need for the lost to be saved through faith in the only Son of God. Now, as we go through this, there's a few more. I'm not saying there's not elements of truth in any of these, but when we attach this, these versions of Jesus and say, this is who Jesus is, and our view of him is only limited to that perspective, then we have a false Jesus. A partial truth that is presented as the whole truth is still a lie. Daniel Darling goes on, and he depicts Dr. Phil Jesus. This Jesus is the tough-talking dispenser of advice. A lot of Christians love this Jesus because he's the solution for all of their problems. Then we have prosperity Jesus. This is the, this uh, Jesus is uh, Dr. Phil's extravagant cousin, uh, the author says, he doesn't just promise a better life, but he promises a wealthy and prosperous life. And then we have one that is, uh, that is, is very prevalent and seeps into places all around us, but the, the post-church Jesus. This is the, the Jesus that allows you to worship him without getting all bogged down in actually being a part of a church. You can just follow this Jesus on your own and you don't need to be connected to a local church. And then maybe the favorite, uh, there's the BFF Jesus, your best friend that you, you know, keep your buddy Jesus in your pocket and have him handy at any given time. He's the, the friend of sinners, yes, and he gives personal salvation by faith, but um, as Daniel Darling says in his article, he says, the BFF Jesus of some of our modern worship songs sounds less like the righteous ruler of Revelation and more like Taylor Swift's ex-boyfriend. He's needy and clingy. And that is a view that resonates with a lot of people and, and Jesus is presented in that way. And then there's genie Jesus. This is the Jesus that performs miracles on demand to give us what we want in life, from physical healings, rescue from financial woes, alleviation from emotional crisis, without regard for recognizing him as the Lord of all. 
Each of these views of Jesus is at best a caricature of the real Jesus. And so as a result, each are an imposter Jesus with no ability to save sinners from hell. So maybe this is one of the most glaring explanations as we get into this as to why the world loves a fake Jesus so much. There's no need for a savior from hell if hell doesn't exist. Remember the Wall Street Journal article. Do we still need hell? Well, if we don't need hell anymore, then what else don't we need? We don't need a savior. If we don't need a savior, we can make Jesus be whatever we want him to be. If hell doesn't exist, then we're left to embrace all the attributes of Jesus that seemingly have nothing to do with hell. For example, we can embrace, if there's no hell, we can still embrace that Jesus is wise, that he wants men to be strong and to be kind to women, that Jesus wants us to help the poor, Jesus wants us to be happy, that Jesus is love, that Jesus hung out with sinners and showed great tolerance, that Jesus says that we shouldn't judge, that Jesus gives us what we want. We can hold all these views of Jesus if there's, if there's no hell. And the world can get behind this kind of a Jesus, but this is a man-centered Jesus. This is a man-focused Jesus. In that Wall Street Journal article, Dr. Scott Bruce says this, in some distant better future, the foreclosure of hell will be an important step to the maturation of human communities that can mete out justice on their own without supernatural aid. Let me just read that again, follow, follow that. In some distant future, a better future, the foreclosure of hell will be an important step in the maturation of human communities that can mete out justice on their own without supernatural aid. As we mature as as humanity, we no longer will need hell. And if we don't need hell, we don't need a savior. And we certainly don't need the Jesus of the Bible. If there's no hell, we get a completely different Jesus. Remove hell, there's no need for grace and mercy. Your good works are plenty. Remove hell and the cross becomes unimportant. Jesus really didn't have to die for my sins if I'm a good person. Remove hell and Jesus is not judge. Remove hell and Jesus does not punish sin. Remove hell and Jesus is not righteous. The world loves a Jesus where there's no hell. But hell is not a matter, matter of opinion. It's not a matter of whether we need it or not. And Jesus is not a matter of opinion. And there is a hell because Jesus is righteous. Jesus treats everything rightly. He values everything as it should be valued. And this means that his glory must be held up over everything else. And that means that when his glory is trampled, it must be punished or he doesn't value his glory and then he wouldn't be righteous and he wouldn't be God. So by definition, if Jesus is God, he must reign over a hell that punishes those who trample his glory. And we do see this picture of a different kind of a Jesus than what the world wants to embrace in Revelation 19. Maybe the most graphic depiction of Jesus in his righteousness judging Revelation 19.11 says, 
This is John speaking as he sees this vision of Jesus. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is not BFF Jesus. And this is not the Jesus that the world loves. The world gets Jesus wrong because we live in a man-centered world. But you know what? Jesus is radically Jesus-centered. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you. you can, we can say that honestly and truly, but before that even, Jesus is Jesus-centered. He has to be. He is more valuable than you are. He's the creator of all things. He holds everything together. For him to be righteous, he must uphold his glory even over sinners who rebel against him. Jesus is radically Jesus-centered. Yes, he loves, but what makes his love so radical is that we're loved by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We're loved by the one who reigns supreme, we're loved by the one who, by his righteousness, must infinitely punish those who rebel, who defy his rightful place as the one who is the most valuable and the most important in the whole universe. And that's all of us. We all rebel against him. We all deserve to be punished by him. But he died in our place so that justice would still be served. Our sin is still punished. God is still just. But he saves us out of his love so that those of us who trust him, who make him Lord, who see him as the real Jesus, we can be saved from that wrath that we deserve. This is the, the real Jesus, but unfortunately it's not very close to the Jesus that the world loves. When we want to be with him, we want to be with the real version of him. Don't you want to be with the real version of Jesus? Not some partial version of Jesus, not some made-up version of Jesus, not some touchy-feely version of Jesus that is far short of who he really is. We want to be with the real version of him. I want to be with the king. When we obey him, we obey him out of a true love, out of a, a Christ-centered love, not out of a, a self-centered love, not a man-centered love. And a Christ-centered love is one who wants to honor Christ for who he is, as God and King. And that means that we willingly obey him. So again, why does the world love a fake Jesus? Primarily because of sin causing us to be self-centered. And what that leads to, as we see in Romans 1, it leads to we exchange the truth of God for what? A lie. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. 
Those who are lost exchange the truth of God for a lie. This includes exchanging the real Jesus for a fake Jesus, for a manufactured Jesus to their own liking. And so the, the biggest lie is removing Jesus from the center of everything. Removing Jesus as the source of truth, removing him from being the source of morality, the source of justice, the source of peace, the source of hope. Removing Jesus from being the center of everything is making a lie out of what we think is true. Colossians 1.16, Paul says, For by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and what? For him. All things were created for him. You were created for him. doesn't say that he was created for you. There's nothing remotely close to that. Jesus was not created and he wasn't, he's not created for you. You were created for him. Everything is created for him. Any wrong view of Jesus turns that around and gets that backwards. Later in Colossians 2, Paul says, In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells. He's God. Self-centeredness or man-centeredness not only redefines morality and justice and hope and truth, but it redefines Jesus. It has to. Because Jesus is central. He's God. He holds everything together. All things are created for him. Anything other than a fully Jesus-centric perspective will by necessity redefine Jesus. Anything other than a fully Jesus-centric perspective will, by necessity, redefine Jesus. And this redefinition will often be a version of Jesus that the world loves because it's a definition of our own choosing. Romans 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Pretty clear, right? How many people do good? Not even one. None. No one does good. No one is righteous. No one seeks for God. It's pretty emphatic. Righteousness is valuing everything as it should be valued. None of us naturally value everything as it should be valued. None of us naturally value Jesus rightly. So all of us are naturally self-centered. And that's all of our tendencies as to have a self-centered view of Jesus, making Jesus into who we want him to be. On top of that, 2 Corinthians 4 says this, starting in verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why does the world love a fake Jesus? Because they're blinded, blinded by Satan, blinded by their love of their self. And unless God opens our eyes, we'll never see the real Jesus. So how does God open, his, open our eyes? Through the preaching of his word, and he uses his people to proclaim Jesus through his word, and he uses that to change hearts and to open eyes. We need to remember that the world doesn't have a monopoly on getting Jesus wrong, though, right? We're all susceptible to latching on to the parts of Jesus that 
we particularly like or that are appealing to our self-centered nature. And we ignore or forget about other realities of Jesus. And so, even as believers, at times, we can be attached to a fake version of Jesus. And we want to guard ourselves from that. We want to expose ourselves to truth and seek more and more to have a real view of Jesus, to reject any other view of Jesus. We don't want to base our understanding of Jesus on our experiences. We don't want to base our understanding of Jesus on on our feelings. We don't want to base our understanding of Jesus on our opinions. God uses our experiences and our feelings and things like that to, to help us to love him more but that shouldn't be what defines who he is to us. He is who he is, and we want to know who he is as he reveals himself to us in, our word, in his word, and we don't want to get caught up in all these other things that affect how we might see or feel about Jesus. And we need to be careful not to wag our finger, fingers at the people who get Jesus wrong. We're all susceptible to doing that ourselves. We all have those kinds of tendencies in our hearts, whether it be guru Jesus or American Jesus or progressive Jesus or genie Jesus or BFF Jesus or any of those versions of Jesus or whatever it might be. We all have sinful bodies that crave self-centeredness and we want to fight against anything that causes us to see Jesus less than the real Jesus. And the real Jesus, as revealed in Scripture, this is, this is, we need to not forget this. The world loves a fake Jesus, but the real Jesus is worthy of every ounce of our love. There is a real Jesus. Dennis is going to talk in a little bit about why the world hates the real Jesus, but let's not miss that the real Jesus is worthy of every bit of our love. I don't want us to miss that Jesus is worthy of our love and of our, of our worship. In the reason for God... Tim Keller articulates an argument from um, Augustine. He says that Augustine, quote, reasoned that unfulfilled desires are clues to the reality of God. Unfulfilled desires are clues to the reality of God. So follow this logic for just a second. How so? Indeed, just because we feel the desire for a steak dinner doesn't mean that we will get it. Feelings don't determine truth. We've established that. However, while hunger does not prove that a particular meal desired will be procured, doesn't the appetite for food in us mean that food does exist? Isn't it true that innate desires correspond to real objects that can satisfy them, such as sexual desire corresponding to sex, physical appetite corresponding to food, tiredness corresponding to sleep, and relational desires corresponding to friendship? We have a longing for joy, love, and beauty that no amount or quality of food, sex, friendship, or success can satisfy. We want something that nothing in this world can fulfill. Isn't that a clue that this something that we want exists? And Keller goes on and finishes this uh, segment and says, the unfulfillable longing then qualifies as a deep, innate human desire and that makes it a major clue that God is there. So he's making the argument, stealing from Augustine, that we have these deep, innate longings, and they don't necessarily mean that, that, um, uh, that, that those longings are going to necessarily be fulfilled in anything in this earth, but maybe the fact that, that they're there 
indicates that there's something that's intended to fulfill those longings. And maybe that something is an indication that God is the only one that can ultimately fulfill those longings. So while our feelings don't determine truth, our deepest desires as humans are clues about what is real. And God has made us with a longing for him, a longing that can only be fulfilled by the real Jesus. We are all hardwired to want what only Jesus can fulfill. We are all hardwired to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we misplace that worship all over the place, don't we? We worship celebrities, musicians, athletes, actors, people who are just on TV because they're on TV. We worship anything and everything because our hearts are made to worship. But they're made to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the only one that fulfills that hardwiring desire that we have to love and to worship something that is all-fulfilling. Not the fake Jesus, but the real Jesus who is God himself, who is love, who is joy, who is peace. And it's worth noting that the real Jesus is righteous and just and brings about punishment for those who sin. So just follow this as, as we come to an end here that the real Jesus reigns over hell. And I want to bring this back to hell because I think that, that that removal of hell from our understanding is what leads down the road to making Jesus into whatever we want him to be. But we have this deep longing for joy and love and beauty, and that's, that's fulfilled in Jesus. But we also have a deep longing for everything to be right. We have a deep longing for fairness, for justice. We naturally and rightly we cringe and we're, we emotionally respond when we see that there's injustice. It's, it's natural for all of us. I probably came the, the closest I ever have been to actually getting into a fist fight um, in ninth grade. Um, this is early in the school year, and it was, um, I was stuck in regular PE before the baseball season started, and we were playing the worst game ever, sorry, soccer, and... Um, and we, were pl- and, and we were playing this in PE, and there was, um, there was a kid there that was, um, that was not fully socially developed, and he was not getting along with the other kids that were out there playing. And all of a sudden, these other kids are totally picking on this kid, and they are relentless, and it's getting brutal. And something snapped inside of me, and I was all of maybe almost five feet tall, and I might have weighed like 90 pounds, and I just went ballistic at, these, at, these, at, these, at, at this whole group of kids, and I grabbed the soccer ball in the middle of the game, I went charging at them, and I threw the ball as hard as I could at their heads, and I was just screaming and yelling, and they all just start backing away, and they were kind of laughing, like, what's just happened to this guy? But something snapped in me when I saw injustice. Something broke in me when I saw somebody being treated unfairly like that, and it, and, it, and it set something loose. I think that's natural in, in humanity. We long for justice. We long for things to be made right. And you know what hell is? Hell is ultimate justice. It's what we actually deserve. It's what we should have. And there's something in us that says, I hate that idea, but it is right. And then when God saves us from that and punishes Jesus in our place, we say, I hate that. 
but God is love and God has saved me from what I know that I deserve. When we see the real Jesus, we can look at hell and we can still understand that and we can still say, praise God, even in the concept, even with the concept of hell because it's still the real Jesus reigns over something that we know inherently is right. We hate injustice. You don't have to, you don't have to teach kids to say, that's not fair. They figure that out on them, by themselves, right? And hell is an answer to that. I'm going to finish with this. The Jesus that we should love is the real Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1, I've been teaching on this in high school, Sunday school for a while, and I just want to read a passage from that chapter. Paul says to the the Thessalonians, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When? When When does God make all things right? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Everything's going to be made right when Jesus returns and one of two things happens. There are for those who do not know God and and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they are going to suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. But those who do believe, they are going to marvel at Jesus' return. We're either going to be suffering eternal destruction or we're going to be marveling when the real Jesus returns. And let me just point to you, as we conclude here, what the real Jesus looks like when he returns. I do this with the high schoolers. I'm going to ask you to do this now, so we'll do an adult version of this. You get to play movie director. You have at your disposal all of the CGI, all of the special effects, everything you could ever possibly want to make the most spectacular, most amazing movie scene ever. You you can do whatever you want, and I want you to make the scene in your head. Think about what this looks like. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. What does that look like? I'm going to suggest to you that your scene as movie director is too small. We know that parallel uh, passage to this, I believe it's in Matthew 25, says that when Jesus returns, he's returning with all of his angels. We know from other passages that all of his angels are defined as 10,000 times 10,000. And we also know that that's an implication that those are the highest numbers that the language had. We're probably talking in the millions. We're talking millions of angels. So what this scene has to look like, if you're making this scene right, is if you imagine Jesus returning in the sky here over the, the freeway in the back of our church, in order for your movie scene to work, you've got to have Jesus in the middle of the sky with the entire sky filled with angels, so you can't see any sky. And then you've got to throw fire into there someplace. This is not BFF Jesus. 
but this is the Jesus that we want to worship, and he's the real Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this time to come to you and to understand who you are a little bit more. Help us to be on guard against falling prey to thoughts of a false Jesus and that we would love the real Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.